0: This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska. A place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net.
1: The scripture reading this morning is from Acts, starting with chapter 24. Again, Acts, chapter 24 verses 24 through 27. Several days later, Felix, the governor of Caesarea, came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer a, him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Right, thanks,
0: Bruce. Hey, you know, it's uh, hard to imagine... We have been in a study of the book of Acts now for nearly a year and a half. Can you believe that? And uh, we are now into Acts uh, chapter 24. And uh, we just have a few chapters left. But you know, the reason we've been doing this is that we at Community Covenant, uh, we are on a vitality pathway. We as a congregation and as individuals, uh, our desire is to be a healthy missional church. Healthy means pursuing Jesus, Missional means pursuing Jesus' priorities in the world. And what better way to be encouraged and to be healthy and missional than looking at the first followers of Jesus Uh, as those followers left Jerusalem and went out into the world to share uh, about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can learn from them and their lives and what it means to be healthy and missional. And uh, today, as we get into Acts chapter 24, as we're moving now towards the end of the book of Acts, we encounter again the Apostle Paul. And of course, Paul uh, was in Jerusalem. He had come and finished. He had finished his third missionary journey. And uh, in Acts uh, 20, uh, he had told the Ephesian elders he was headed for Jerusalem. Uh, he had an offering that he had taken that he wanted to give to the Jerusalem church. He also wanted to go and worship and thanked the Lord for the fruitfulness that God had blessed him with in, in planting churches throughout uh, Asia Minor and through what we now know as Europe. And uh, as he said goodbye to them, they were worried because they were afraid of what might happen to him as he returned to Jerusalem because he had a reputation among the Jewish people as one who was proclaiming salvation in Christ, uh, talking about the cross and about resurrection, and not only that, that the gospel was available, not only to the Jew, but to the Gentile. And so, as he said goodbye to the Ephesian elders, they uh, they were distraught, knowing that they would probably never see him again, and concerned about what would happen to him. And uh, he told them, you know, I'm going, and the Holy Spirit uh, tells me uh, that there will be much hardship, much difficulty that awaits me, but I'm going anyway. And so, he left, and having completed that third missionary journey, he makes his way to Jerusalem. And uh, he does have that offering that he wants to give to the church, and so he's received uh, by those other followers of Christ with open arms, and they celebrate him. And of course, it's about the time of Pentecost. That's why he was wanting to go and worship there, the uh, Feast of Pentecost. And while he was there in Jerusalem, there were some Jews from Asia. And they were there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and they recognized him, and they identified him. And you might recall that as he went from the various cities, there was a group of Jews who would follow him and make trouble for him. And time and time again, it seemed like he was being chased out of cities, right, for the sake of Christ. He'd share the gospel, and there'd be those that would be upset with him, and they would chase him out of the town. And now he's recognized by some of them who are in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And they see him, and they're in an uproar. Now, that's the guy. Here he is. He's, he's in Jerusalem. And you might recall, the uproar was so great that there was almost, a, it was like a riot that started. And the um, the commander of the Roman troops there intervened, seized Paul, uh, at first was going to try to find out what, what was going on and, and he was going to do what? He was going to punish Paul, but then he found out that Paul was a Roman citizen and it was against the law to, to punish a Roman citizen without a trial, a fair trial, right? And so he stopped and instead he called the Jewish council, called the Sanhedrin in. You might recall this was last week. And he calls them in and says, what's going on? Why is this controversy surrounding this man? Uh, and the Sanhedrin, led by the high priest, um, he makes a charge against Paul. And they basically are saying there's three things about him. Number one, he's a troublemaker. Uh, he stirs up trouble wherever he goes. Everyone knows about him, including the Jews from Asia, where he stirred up lots of trouble. And uh, number two, uh, he is a leader of a, of a ring of followers, a band of followers called uh, The Way. And... Uh, he is stirring up trouble, and they are stirring up trouble, and he's a ringleader. And number three, he desecrated the temple uh, by inviting a, a Gentile to come and to worship there. Now, the first charge, of course, uh, that we're going to see levied against him, um, we're going to find, well, that, that's not true. Uh, he didn't stir up any trouble in, in Jerusalem. He went there to give the offering to the church and to worship. Uh, he was not bothering anybody. Uh, but those who knew of his reputation stirred up trouble um, because they were angered by him and they were threatened by the message of the cross. Uh, the second thing was that he was a follower of the way. Uh, in the early days of the Christian movement, it was looked upon as another sect of of Judaism. And they were known as followers of the way. Okay, And uh, in the Roman world, in order for a sect to be legitimate, it had to be approved by the Roman government. And so, what they're saying is, he's a sect of, uh, known as The Way. What they're trying to do is threaten the legitimacy of Paul and his right to share the gospel. But Paul, in his defense, as we're going to see, says, no, uh, I am practicing the faith of our Jewish fathers. And not only that, I believe in what the prophet said concerning um, the resurrection. And he goes on and on, but he, he associates himself and his belief in Christ as a Jewish movement, okay? So it's legitimate in the eyes of Rome. And then the third thing uh, about desecrating the temple, uh, he did not desecrate the temple, nor did he allow a Gentile to come into the temple to worship. That was a charge made against him, okay? So this is what's going on as we get in here to uh, chapter 24. And you might recall last week, uh, after the uh, Roman commander heard all of this, uh, there was an uproar again amongst the members of the Sadhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, so much so that he felt Paul's safety was threatened. So he pulled Paul aside and held him prisoner for his own safety. Now, while Paul was being held prisoner, um, there was a conspiracy. There were 40 Jews who made an oath. And here was the oath. We're not going to eat or we're not going to drink until... We kill Paul and end this scourge. Okay? And they plotted along with the high priest and the Sanhedrin. They were in on it. Um, They were zealots. And they plotted to kill Paul. And they were going to tell the commander, Hey, listen, bring Paul back out. We want some more clarification. And they're thinking when they bring him out, that's when we're going to attack him and kill him. But God intervenes. How does God intervene? God intervenes in that Paul's nephew his sister's son hears of the plot. And his nephew goes to the Roman commander, tells the Roman commander, or goes to Paul, tells Paul what he's hearing. Paul then sends him to the Roman commander. The Roman commander says, okay, I'm not going to let this happen on my watch because Paul is a Roman citizen. And if anything happens to him as a Roman citizen in my care, I'll be responsible. So he literally devises a plan where he takes 400... Soldiers and cavalrymen, and he sends Paul off to um, to a city about seventy five miles away. We'll read about that here in a second. And uh, for Paul's own safety, and while Paul is there, he sends him to see Felix. Felix is the governor of this Roman province, and Felix now is going to. Call the Sanhedrin and the representatives of the Sanhedrin to come and give an explanation for what's going on and why they're responding against Paul in the way that they are. And that brings us to where we are today, okay? That's a kind of quick review of where we've been. And so what happens is, again, they come and they bring with them an attorney, uh, a prosecutor, And the prosecutor, again, is going to bring the three charges against him. We find that in Acts 24, verses 5 through 8. He says, We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader in the Nazarene sect, okay? That Nazarene sect is the way, that is, those who are followers of Jesus. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. And then the prosecutor says to Felix, the Roman governor, By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. And then verse 9 says, The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Okay? So here you go. This is what's happening. Felix is listening. And Now Paul is going to respond. And of course, Paul, it's ironic, had been a prosecutor himself that he had formerly, before his conversion, had prosecuted Christians, hadn't he? And he had been responsible for the persecution that broke out in the early church in Jerusalem, which caused those early followers of Jesus to scatter and literally through his persecution of those followers of Jesus caused the message of Christ to scatter. And now here was the one who had been, what? The prosecutor being persecuted for doing the same thing that he had persecuted the other followers of Jesus for doing earlier in the movement. So here he is, and he takes this opportunity to share, to share who he is, what he's about, and how he's not guilty of any of the charges um, that he's being charged with except one, that he is a follower of the way, he is a follower of Jesus, and in particular that he is preaching the message of the cross and the resurrection Now, after all of that happens, Felix decides that he's going to end the hearing because he believes that Paul is innocent of the charges, but he's a politician. And if you're a Roman governor, the number one thing you want to do in your province that you're governing is make sure that there's peace. And during this particular time, what was going on in in this province that that he was governing was that there was um, strife between Gentiles, non-Jewish citizens, and Jewish citizens. And there was ethnic strife and struggle, and there was... uh, Uh, a struggle to see which group would prevail and which would have the favor of the Roman government there in that area. But the area was primarily made up of Jewish people. And so here's Felix, the consummate politician, in his heart believing that Paul is innocent of the three charges that have been laid against him. Okay, He's heard the argument, he's heard Paul's defense, and he believes that Paul is innocent, but he wants to keep peace with a Jewish population. So what does he do? Well, like any good politician, sorry if you are one, he does nothing. Right? Did I say that? I'm so sorry. So what he does is he ends the hearing, and he has Paul put in under guard in the palace. Essentially, Paul becomes a prisoner. Now he's able to have people come and visit him. He's able to conduct his own business. He's able to write. He's able to do all kinds of things. But he's not free to go. And there he is uh, in the palace uh, of Felix. And Felix's wife's name is Drusilla. We, we read about her as well. She is a, a Jew. She is uh, the daughter of uh, Agrippa... Uh, Herod Agrippa, and then Herod Agrippa II is going to be her brother, who Paul's going to see later on. And uh, Felix, well, he was a slave, and he was a slave in the emperor's household, and he was able to purchase his freedom. And because he was associated with the emperor's household, he had been, what, found the favor of the emperor and had been elevated and promoted to a high position. So you have this non-Jewish governor, and you have this wife who is a Jew who is really connected with the hierarchy of Judaism. And there they are, and they're calling Paul in to speak further with them. And that's where our verses uh, start today in verses 24 and 27. And as we read that, we read how day after day he would call them in, or they would call him in, and they would speak with Paul. Paul. Now as we look here again at verse 24, it says, several days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about what? First, faith in Christ. And second, as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When uh, I find it convenient, I will send for you. So what's happening here? Paul takes the opportunity to preach and to share the gospel to Felix and Drusilla, his wife. But not only that, he talks about Jesus and about the gospel message, but he personalizes it. And how does he do that? He teaches about self-righteousness, self-control, and about judgment to come. Now, why would that be relevant to Felix? Because Felix was a corrupt governor, Alright? right? Very corrupt. Uh, He he tried to get bribes from people. Uh, He manipulated circumstances and situations in his favor. He was known throughout the region as being corrupt. And so as Paul begins to share the gospel, he wants not only to share the gospel, but he wants to personalize it and get directly to the heart of Felix. And so he's talking about what? Righteousness. Righteousness, Because Felix was not a righteous man. And so he takes the gospel message and he applies it directly to the governor. And not only that, he talks about righteousness, which you know is going to convict Felix. But he talks about self-control. Now, Felix was a, a sensual man. He had been married, what, I think three times. In fact, his current wife had been married to another man... And because he lusted after her and found her attractive, he convinced her to divorce her husband. And because he had prominence in the empire, and especially at that time with the emperor, he was able to get away with it. She divorces her husband and marries him. Okay? So he lacked self-control. He he let his his passions run and rule his life. Not only was he dishonest, but he lacked self-control. And so what is Paul doing? Man, Paul is just directing his comments and his teaching right into his heart. Not only are you unrighteous, and you need to be righteous, the righteousness that comes from Christ that transforms one's life, you need that, but you need self-control. You need to get a hold of your passion. And then the third thing is judgment. Because if you don't do that, there is a judgment that's coming. And the only way that you're going to escape that judgment is to place your faith in Christ, to have forgiveness of your sins, and to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Right? That's that's basically what is going on here. And yet, again and again and again, as what Felix calls Paul in to talk, there seems to be no desire to change. In fact, his motive, the Scripture says, is His only desire is maybe he can get a bribe. Because he heard about how Paul had brought the offering to Jerusalem. So maybe Paul was a person of substance or those around him had substance, had means. And so by holding him, not only did he appease the Jews, but he also increased his chances that the longer he held Paul, maybe Paul's associates would pay a bribe to free him. Okay? Isn't that ironic? Here's Paul talking to Felix about righteousness, about self-control, and about judgment. Going right to, to the issue of Felix's heart. But what does Felix do? He says, you know what, for now, you go away. I'll call you back when it's convenient, okay? That means he's feeling conviction, doesn't it? And then later on, he calls him back several times not responding to the message, not saying, you know what, I do need righteousness in my life. I do need self-control. And I do fear judgment. Tell me more about Jesus. No, he calls him back because he hopes he can bribe him. I mean, his heart is, is totally seared. He has multiple opportunities to respond. And yet he doesn't. Uh, Billy Graham says this. this is This amazing. He says, I find that I can preach on any subject other than the cross, and it does not seem as offensive to people as the cross does. I can preach on doing good works, on social improvement, on all kinds of things, and people will applaud me. But when I preach on the cross and the blood of Christ, there is an offense. The offense of the cross arises chiefly from the fact that the cross condemns every other way of salvation. Okay? This is, uh, there is only one way, said Jesus, one road, one gate to the kingdom, and that is the way of the cross. That's what Billy Graham says. Okay? Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so, here it is. The message of the cross is being shared as Paul's put on trial. Uh, those from the Sanhedrin from Jerusalem are hearing it. The governor and his wife are hearing it. People are hearing it. And yet, rather than responding to it, okay, they're repulsed by it or they work against it because it is an offense. Because, in the words of the theologian, Wolfhart Pannenberg, the evidences for Jesus' resurrection are so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. And really, isn't that the heart of the matter here in our passage today? As Felix heard the message, he says, go away, I'll call you back when it's convenient, because if he were to follow the message, he would be inconvenienced. Because literally, if he were to follow Christ, he would have to change the way that he lived. That the message of the cross demands a decision. It demands a choice. Is one going to continue to live the way they always have? Or are they going to surrender their lives to the rule and reign of the true and one King, Jesus Christ? And that's what's going on here. And so here's the irony again. You see Paul, the one who was formerly the prosecutor, being persecuted. But not only that, now he's in a position of giving testimony. And that testimony is such that he is inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the cross. All right. He's willing to change the way he lives and he's willing to be persecuted and encounter much difficulty for the sake of sharing the gospel message. So Paul, he's willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. And here you find Felix hearing the gospel and he's inconvenienced by the gospel. Go away. I don't want to hear any more right now. I'll call you back when it is convenient okay but why imagine spending two years having conversations with the great evangelist with the great teacher the apostle Paul how in the world could this person Felix and his wife not respond to the gospel message how could that not happen well 2nd Corinthians 4 4 the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers So they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Do you know that? Do you know that Satan says the God, God being in in small g, not capital G, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers that he is at work shrouding their spiritual eyes. So that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus Christ, who is the very image of God. That's how someone like Felix can spend, what, two years listening to Paul and still not be changed. But you know, in spite of that, in spite of the rejection, in spite of people's unwillingness to respond, to, to, Turn away from their lives and turn to what? Jesus? Charles Spurgeon says this. In spite of all that, Spurgeon writes, If you reject him, speaking of Christ, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. And if you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. So you know what's going on here in this conversation, especially the initial one between Paul and Felix? The reason that Felix is inconvenienced is because the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is bringing conviction. And he's faced with a choice. What's he going to do with it? Is he going to continue to live the way he has? Or is he going to allow Christ into his life to address the issues of righteousness and self-control? Right? Right? And to recognize that without Christ, and without the forgiveness of sin, that he will face a certain judgment. And so there's conviction. There's a struggle. There's a tension that's going on there. That's why he sends Paul away initially, before calling him back. And what we see here is what the author of Hebrew writes in Hebrews 4, 12-13. He says, For the word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Now listen to this. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Wow. And yet, Felix was entrenched in his sinful life. He wanted to hold on to power. He wanted to be, what? A person on the rise. A person who could achieve higher and higher office and greater and greater favor. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world... If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Felix had a heart problem. He was in love with the world. I'm certain that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the and the pride of life dominated his what? Pursuit of power and of stature and position in the world, so much so that he was numb to the message of the gospel. And here's another irony. Remember that as a consummate politician, he set Paul aside, keeping him under guard for two years? in order to appease the Jews and try to maintain peace between the Jews and the Gentile, all the time continuing to accept brides and manipulate and manage by force and violence. Do you know what happens at the end of two years? He's recalled to Rome. And why is he recalled to Rome? Because the very thing he's attempting to do, right, by keeping Paul under guard for two years, appeasing the Jews, keeping peace between the Jews and the and the Gentiles in his province, the very thing he's attempting to do, it just blows up. And there's upheaval. In fact he's recalled to Rome, and if he hadn't come from the former emperor's house, that's Claudius, if he if he didn't have those kind of relationships, that kind of connection, he could have been severely punished. But as it was, he lost all of his power and all of his position. Okay? So the very thing he was attempting to hold on to, he lost by trying to hold on to it. And the very thing that he could have gained by receiving his teaching, right, he forfeited. How ironic is that? In Mark 8.36, we read these words. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Jim Elliot, the martyred missionary, says this. A man is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. And you can see in the life of Felix, right? Right? that which he tried to keep he lost and that which what he could have had for eternity slipped through his fingers and so in the end there are four things that we can take away from this passage number 1 is that christianity is not accommodating to compromise or convenience It threatens those who seek to avoid personal disruption and are vested in the status quo. And that's exactly who Felix was. Number two, it invites us to embrace transformation, just not behavioral modification. When Jesus Christ comes into the heart of a man or a woman, he transforms it. Christianity is not about behavior modification. It is about transformation. If any person be in Christ Jesus, they're a new creation. The old things pass away. All things become new. And finally, and this is so telling in this passage, saying yes to Christ means saying no to convenience. Christ is the great convenience killer. Saying yes to Christ means saying no to convenience. Whether you are the Apostle Paul who obeys God's call to testify to the cross and in doing so experiences great personal inconvenience for the sake of the cross, or you're a person like Felix who hears the message of the cross, understands the call of righteousness and and self-control because the cross points right at the heart of the matter of every man and woman's life. And yet, there are those who won't be inconvenienced by that because they want to try to hold on to something that's going to slip through their fingers anyway and lose the thing that they can have forever. That's what we see here in this passage. And so this morning, the challenge for you and I is are we willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel, for the cross? If you're already a Christian... Are you willing to live for Jesus in the world? Are you willing to go to places to, to, to represent Him, to be His ambassador to the world, to take advantage of every opportunity to live for Christ in this world with all the inconveniences that that might entail? And if you don't know Jesus, are you going to be like Felix? Are you going to hear the message again and again and again and again and again and again and again, and again refuse it? trying to hold on to something that you're going to lose in the end? Or are you going to respond? And are you going to allow the God, the sovereign creator of the universe who loves you, who wants to to have a personal relationship with you, are you going to invite Him to be the king and ruler of your life? And not to have your behavior modified, but to be transformed into the man or the woman that God desires you to be Either way, God calls us to respond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the message of the cross. We thank you for those who have gone before us, for those who model for us what it means to live for you. And Lord, we also thank you for those who are in the pages of Scripture who model what happens to those who hear again and again the invitation to, to receive Christ and yet refuse it. And by doing so, lose the very thing they're trying to hold on to and miss out on the very thing that they cannot lose, and that is eternity with you. And so, Father, today we pray that wherever we are, whatever side of the coin that our lives might be, that we would respond to your message, that we would respond to Jesus with our very lives, that we would live for him in the world. And, Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know the reality of the living God that they've not come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, I pray today that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would prompt their hearts that you would call them into that relationship, that they would surrender and fall into your loving arms and allow you, Father, to transform their lives. Lord, we pray these things this morning. We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.